Welcome to the New Books Network. It took me a long time to realize this, but basically the, the very essence of Catholic orthodoxy is maintaining paradoxes. All, mm-hmm. the, all the central beliefs of Catholic Christianity are profound paradoxes, the coincidence of opposites. Professor Carlos Eyre of Yale talks about the theology and life and times of St. Teresa of Avila, the 16th century Spanish mystic, discalced Carmelite nun, and doctor of the church on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and to have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I have the honor of speaking to Carlos Eyre. He is a professor of history and religious studies at Yale, specializing in late medieval and early modern Europe, especially the Protestant and Catholic Reformations, and the history of popular piety, the supernatural, and death. His books include War Against Idols, The Reformation of Worship from Erasmus to Calvin, From Madrid to Purgatory, The Art and Craft of Dying in the 16th Century Spain, A Very Brief History of Eternity, Reformations, and most recently, The Life of St. Teresa of Avila, a biography, whom we will be talking about today. He's the co-author of Jews, Christians, and Muslims, an Introduction to Monotheistic Religions, and his memoir about his childhood during the Cuban Revolution, Waiting for Snow in Havana, won the National Book Award in Nonfiction in the United States and has been translated into more than a dozen languages. His second memoir, Learning to Die in Miami, explores the exile experience. All of his books are banned in Cuba, where he has been proclaimed an enemy of the state, a distinction which he regards as the highest of all honors. So welcome, Professor Eyre. Oh, my pleasure to be here and join you. Thanks for inviting me to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Would you like to tell us a joke? Sure. It's a joke that's uh, very instructive, and I actually often insert it into at least one lecture per semester. Uh, The origin of the joke, it began as a Jewish joke. That's how I heard it. But I think it's a perfect joke for it applies to basically all religions. And it goes something like this. A man is shipwrecked on a deserted island and um, isn't rescued for 30 years. So, And he's all alone on the island. He's the only one. It's a tiny island. When the rescuers finally show up, uh, he gives them a tour of his little island, but they're they're mystified. They're very surprised to find that he has two houses of worship, <laughs> both equally elaborate, right? Which took a lot of effort and, and a lot of time to build. And yet he lives in a hut himself. So it doesn't take them very long to ask the obvious question, why? Why two houses of worship? And he turns around and with great disgust in his face, he points at one of them and says, you don't think I would set foot in that one ever, do you? (laughs) And that is the history of religion in a joke. Yeah, okay. Um, I've I've never heard that one before, so that's terrific. It helps helps when you're talking about heresies and 
disagreements and yeah. schisms and everything else that has plagued the Christian religion. And it's plagued just about, as I said before, uh, most religions. Well, before we talk about religion and um, early modern Spain and so on, would you tell us a bit about your life, perhaps uh, from your memoirs and your childhood and the evacuation of the United States and how you became a historian and a, and a professor at Yale? Sure. Uh, the short version is that I was born in Cuba in 1950. And uh, of course, my entire childhood w was spent under one dictatorship, a kind of mild-mannered dictatorship. Fulgencio Batista was a military man who staged a coup in early 52, when I was just a little over a year, some months old. Uh, so my entire childhood, I, I lived through the so-called Cuban Revolution. 1959, on New Year's Day, Fidel Castro and his rebels took over. What most people don't know about this part of Cuban history is that Fidel Castro and his rebels were only one of many groups trying to unseat mm. Batista. But he muscled his way into power and very quickly got rid of everyone else, including the very democratically minded university students who had actually risked their lives and many of them had actually died in the process. They were, they were much bolder in their confrontation of Batista than Fidel Castro and his men ever were. But he muscled his way in, and, and uh, before too long, uh, the, there he was, uh, taking away everybody's property, confiscating all the newspapers, uh, shutting down all news organizations, and controlling not just communication, but trying to control thought. All this within the space of about a year and some months. It all happened very quickly and surprised everyone. And um, parents were desperate from 1960 on. Parents were desperate to get their children out of Cuba, especially after Fidel Castro declared himself a Marxist-Leninist and uh, proclaimed Cuba an atheistic state. <laughs> hmm. Uh, expelled all, all the foreign clergy, and there were many, many foreign clergy, expelled all the religious orders too, including the Jesuits who had educated him and his brother. And uh, it was very difficult to obtain visas to leave Cuba. But a program was begun here in the United States, uh, cooperation between uh, the Catholic Church and the U.S. State Department to issue visa waivers to children. Visa waiver would, would allow the child to come to the United States. And then once the child was here, the child could petition for their, their parents to get visas. Because um, otherwise, visas required security clearances, could take forever, you might not get one. Anyway, this thing mushroomed. It just completely blew up to something totally unexpected for both the Catholic Church and for the US State Department. Um, from December of 1960 to October of 1962, over 14,000 children came to the U.S. without their parents. Wow. My brother and I were two of those children. And um, our father never got to leave. We never saw him again because he was not allowed to leave. And um, he died suddenly uh, at age 67, unexpectedly. Our mother, it took her three and a half years to, to get an exit visa and finally come to the United States. 
I should add that, that this is a footnote to the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis that was mm. that one of Fidel Castro's responses after Nikita Khrushchev took away his toys was to close the doors and not allow anyone to leave Cuba. So my parents were trapped and the parents of, you know, most of those 14,000 children were trapped too. And it took a long time for reunions to take place. To make this long story as short yeah. as possible, nothing, nothing frightened me more as a child than a church, than religion, especially the, the Spanish Catholic iconography, which focuses so much on the passion of Christ. I found Christ very scary. Very scary. But uh, having my experience here in the U.S. as an orphan who bounced from foster home to foster home and actually spent nine months in a uh, home for juvenile delinquents because there was no other place for me, I discovered it wasn't Jesus that was scary. It was the world that was scary. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I, had, I had a very slow but uh, definite religious conversion of sorts in my early teens as a result of my experiences. And since I had grown up in a household where the past was more important than the present, uh, my father was consumed with history. I decided to combine two things, um, my love of history and my um, life of faith. So mm. I got a BA from Loyola, Chicago in history and theology and then went on to a PhD in history of Christianity here at Yale. And um, nothing else felt natural but that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as, as the saying goes, uh, do something that you love and you'll never feel like you've worked a day in your life. That's, that's been yeah. the final and very long chapter to my career is I've, I've always enjoyed what I'm doing very, very much so. Do I understand that you were reunited with your mother after three and a half years yes. of this? Um, she was yeah. sent to Chicago um, immediately upon arriving in Miami because by the time she arrived, uh, President Lyndon Johnson had established the freedom flights, so-called freedom flights, and you know thousands of Cubans were arriving in Miami, and Miami couldn't take them in. So the new arrivals were usually dispersed. They sent her to Chicago because um, it had so many factories and so many immigrants and um, having English would not be as important for her. She never, she didn't speak English. So uh, uh, we ended up in Chicago, a place that, uh, you know, not, we, we knew nothing about. And uh, our roles were reversed, of course, immediately. I was 15. My brother was 18. We were both teenagers and we had had three years of complete freedom, so to speak, you know, no parents. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden we had a parent we had to take care of and do everything for. Yeah. Because in addition to not knowing English, uh, my mother was physically handicapped. She had had polio as a, as a little girl, as an infant, actually. And um, we, we were not alone. I mean, I knew so many other kids who were in the same situation as my brother and myself that, you know, we had suddenly become our parents' guardians in, in essence. But yeah. I, the, the downside was that after, you know, so many years of being free, we suddenly had someone giving <laughs> us instructions and rules all the time. So yeah. it was a weird situation. Yeah. Uh, many of the men and women who, who, who came through the same program that I did, the same airlift, 
say that reuniting with parents was in many ways more traumatic than leaving the parents hmm. because of the readjustment that we all had to make. Yeah, when one would guess the opposite, never having experienced it, and I'm sure you had very conflicting feelings about about all that and as did your... Yeah, well, among uh, other things, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this is 1965, so, you know, the world was very yeah. different. Um, <laughs> the advice that we right. got from a social worker in Chicago was uh, that we should quit high school and go work full time. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't do that because I was only 15. So for my fr entire freshman year of high school, I worked full time at night and went to school during the day. So in a way, it's a miracle I ended up <laughs> as a scholar. Yeah. Well, and what a benefit to um, the, the field of early modern European history and, and uh, the rest of us that you that you did not take that advice. Uh, this is a period that I, I I love a lot, and especially in Spain, and that's what I did my uh, yeah. graduate work on a little while ago. Um, but for somebody who might be listening who who ha it hasn't studied this, what is faith like in the 16th century? This is the moment of, of first Luther and then right. the other reformations and then the um, Catholic counter-reformation. But, for example, today a person chooses what they wish mm -hmm. to believe and be, choose to believe something or nothing or be agnostic. Is that a, is that a, a mentality that existed in at this time? Or was it like being a fish in the water? Religion was everywhere. If you were, say, um, a, a Muslim or a Jew in Spain, you were really a different kind of yeah, well, uh, person. I mean, what is it? What is it like? A lot depended on where one lived. But uh, beyond that, there wasn't much, much choice. It was, as you say, uh, as water for fish. It was the law everywhere throughout Europe. They had to be baptized as an infant and parents had to do this. And there were, there, there were severe penalties for not baptizing one's children. The only people in, in Western Europe that were excused were the Jews who, depending on where you were, were, were persecuted to a greater or lesser extent. In many places such as England and France, all the Jews had already been expelled by the 16th century. So religion was a given, but faith is a whole different dimension uh, to talk mm. about uh, how much people actually believed what they believed, how they understood what they thought they believed, varied immensely. But basically, before Protestantism came along, right, when, when Western Europe uh, was monolithically Catholic, except for parts of Bohemia, where John Huss had uh, created some sort of independence from Catholicism in parts of Bohemia. Uh, aside from that, everyone belonged to the same church. But there were actually two classes of believers. Let's put it that way. There were the lay people who may or may not have been people of faith. And then there was the professional class of clergy who ostensibly were, were wholly dedicated to their, their faith and, and to, in some way uh, helping society through their faith. Now, of course, there was a lot of corruption among the clergy. There were many of, you know, insincere vocations, uh, and there were a lot of corrupt practices among the clergy and so on and so forth, which everyone knows about. But um, if you were really serious about being religious, you, you became a cleric. Or if you were female, right, because you couldn't become a priest of any kind, you'd become a nun. 
and many men became monks and they were never ordained as priests uh, too. But the fact was that um, if you read the lives of these clerics, if anyone wrote about their lives uh, later, the moment at which they decide to become a quote unquote religious is treated as a conversion. That's their conversion experience. Mm. So basically, you know, there are many different lines on this spectrum of belief, but I think it was possible to divide the spectrum in two very easily. There were those who took it seriously and those who didn't. Let's take the example of uh, Teresa of Avila, the subject of your uh, most recent book. Um, she is a doctor of the church today. Who is who is this remarkable woman and this saint? Yeah, well, Teresa, um, you know, had her conversion experience uh, in her teens is when it begins. But, uh, you know, she was actually sent to the convent, as many girls were, because it was a safe place for her as a teenager. Her mother had died. She had eight other siblings, most of them uh, boys, men. Uh, but her father felt unable to take care of her without a woman in the household, so he put her in a convent. And she describes her time in early years in the convent as, you know, she describes herself as a very lackadaisical nun. But she also went through a series of very uh, bizarre, undiagnosable illnesses, including at one point she was taken for dead. And actually they were preparing her for burial. But accidentally, as people were sitting there around her in the coffin, a curtain caught on fire and there was a great commotion in the room and whoop, she woke up and yeah. startled the, the hell literally out of everybody in the room. But she was paralyzed for a long time and, and infirm and all of that illness, all of this, again, providence, accident, call it whatever. She ended up spending some time with an uncle who had these uh, devotional texts that he introduced her to. And those texts began drawing her to the life of the spirit, to prayer, yeah. and began, she began to take her life as a nun more seriously. And before you know it, following the advice of these books of devotion, she begins to have mystical experiences. She begins to get closer and closer to the divine and actually cross the line into the supernatural divine realm. May I, before we go to that, is it fair to say that the life of a religious woman was more comfortable than the life of a, a lay woman that today we think of, you know, be entering a convent, for example, to be a, a, a thing of austerity and, and self-denial. But perhaps back then, this was, you, you, it's comfortable. You sing, you pray, you read books versus you toil on the farm, you bear children, who knows if you'll survive that um, and so on. That is correct. And there were also uh, noticeable um, social distinctions within convents, too. Mm -hmm. uh, Teresa came from a merchant family that, that had of means. So she actually had a little suite in, in the convent, uh, yeah. not just the cell, but she had a little suite. And, you know, she could visit with people. People would come in to see her. She could go out to see people. As a matter of fact, her convent you know, this is perhaps not the, the correct way to put it, but they, they rented out nuns. <laughs> hmm. They would send nuns to people's homes when, when the company of a nun was, was needed. And of course, you know, you, the, the family who would get a nun to, to help somebody who was sick or dying yeah. would, of course, make a contribution 
to the convent. Right. So she could spend, she and the other nuns could spend considerable amount of time out of the convent too. And no childbearing, of course, mm-hmm. no child care, freedom to, to write, to do all sorts of different things. But one should never forget that it was a very regimented life. Yeah. It's not like they spent the day doing whatever they wanted. No, they had to follow a very, very, very rigid schedule of prayer, common prayer, as well as private prayer. And so do you have an idea what this um, uh, this near-death experience was, some, some kind of infection or a brain injury? No or... one knows. No one knows. No one knows. At one point, her father just gave up on doctors because they only seemed to be making her worse. So he took her to a natural healer. Uh, in Spanish, the word is curandera. Mm-hmm. Curar is to heal. But uh, she made her even worse than the doctors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... The paralysis was a mystery. It remains a mystery. Uh, Actually, back in 1982, so exactly 40 years ago, an article was published in the Catholic Historical Review that retroactively diagnosed Teresa as having temporal lobe epilepsy and actually attributed her mystical experiences, her ecstasies, to temporal lobe epilepsy. That's the closest I've seen anyone come to taking a stab at a diagnosis, right? Yeah. Uh, But actually, some of her symptoms, I mean, this article lays it out beautifully. Some of her symptoms match temporal lobe epilepsy. Okay, so then what happens? So she she's considered dead. She is she revives. She has to learn how to walk like a baby all That's over right. again. For a while, she tells us she had to crawl on all fours. So yes, just like a baby. Yeah. And um, she begins to experience the divine. It all begins while praying before an image of the scourged Christ. She, she has an encounter with Jesus himself through viewing and, and meditating and praying on this image. And from there on in, she has all these otherworldly experiences. And of course, she has to go to her confessors and tell them what's going on, and she does. And for a while there, she meets resistance from uh, her confessors who keep telling her, you know, that could be the devil. As a matter of fact, it probably is the devil giving you these experiences. So there's a very funny description of this in Teresa's autobiography where she, she tells us all the confessors were telling her to not trust her visions of Christ. Mm-hmm. And one of them actually orders her the next time Christ shows up, give him the fig. <laughs> which is a hand gesture that was the equivalent of flipping the bird yeah, or giving the finger. And she obeys and she does this. She tells us this herself. Jesus shows up, she gives him the fig, and Jesus then says to her, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for obeying your confessor. Yeah. Yeah. But now go tell him, I'm not the devil. And from there on, she finally gets a Jesuit confessor who actually encourages her to trust these visions. And um, this brings us to you know this very fine line that everyone had to tread in the 16th century. If you claimed any contact with otherworldly realities, you could be suspected and often were suspected uh, of you know dealing with the devil. Right. So being a mystic has never been easy. That was also true throughout the Middle Ages. You know, how, how do you prove? You, you tell people, I just saw Christ. How do you prove that you have, right? 
So the proof came through her behavior where she was very self-effacing and uh, practiced and uh, humility at every turn. Like for instance, you know, giving Jesus the fig obedience too was it was a sign that she was on the right track but um, she starts to levitate during ecstasies and then everyone knows for sure oh this is something real is happening here Uh, she has to prove uh, that her levitations are not demonically induced but she actually begins to pray to god please stop doing this to me and uh, her levitations cease but by that point she has committed herself to reforming her own religious order, the Carmelites, and establishes, to, takes, it takes a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of anguish to establish a branch of the Carmelites, the discalced Carmelites or barefoot Carmelites. May I, may I interject before uh, we say that? Are you convinced about the levitations from your, your studies and your sources that these that they've been you know, confirmed by people who are skeptical of her mysticism and things. oh yes, yeah, yes. third party witnesses who were not her you know were not on her side saw these things. Well, and... no, no one, no one was not on her side. Yeah, but the the, the reports all match each other, and uh, they're numerous. As a matter and of you... fact, in the canonization process, the stories are very detailed of what what happened. And um, actually, my next book uh, is on levitation and bilocation ah. and has a whole chapter on Teresa yeah. and her levitations. And I, I call her reluctant levitator. Yeah. She did yeah. nothing but complain to God. Please stop this. Why are you doing this to me? You know, it puts me, it puts me in danger. It puts me on that fine line. People are uh, starting to venerate me. And then, you know, no one will think of me as humble. So, right. and, and they cease. But you consider them a historical fact. You're satisfied. I'm satisfied in this. Yeah. Right. It's a fact that people saw her levitating. It's, it's a fact that the reports exist. Let me put it that way. Yes. It's a fact that they exist. And then you can add to that a little bit of Trelch, a little bit of social science, what Trelch called a social fact. A social fact is... The, the existence of something that everyone takes so much for granted that it's real and you cannot challenge it. Yeah. In the same way that for us now living in the United States in 2022, it has become a social fact that you dare not challenge that all white people are racists. Mm. That has become a social fact. The, Maybe at Yale, but I think there's plenty of uh, back and forth about that. There's plenty of back and forth outside of Yale. Yeah. Not here. This is a hot topic at any given dinner table, right? I know it is, but it's become a social fact in the milieu in which I live. Yes. Uh, Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for for that correction, because I very seldom, especially since COVID, venture out from my little cocoon. Yeah. Right. Oh, I... um... But I think, like, for example, if you go to the Fatima story in 1917, 60,000 people saw the sun dancing. That's right. And I would, I would so love to see the sun dancing. I would love to see, uh, you know, a mystic levitate. But here I am taking things on faith because that's what I have. You know, and I guess blessed is he who doesn't see and still believes. That's right. I have never seen anyone levitate. Yeah. And after my book comes out, you know, 
I'm putting myself out on the limb, <laughs> uh, figuratively as well as literally, right? Uh, uh, yeah. I say that um, it should be considered possible. Yeah. Actually, the subtitle of my book will probably be A History of the Impossible. Yeah. But weirder things can happen. And natural science has, has actually, you know, uh, well, let me put it a different way. We do have levitating trains. Uh -huh. so, right? <laughs> yes, and, sir. And we, we do have bilocation. You and I are bilocating right now. That's true. That's true. My voice is in Connecticut and your That's voice right. is, in, is in California. That's right. And if we were on Zoom. Yeah, my or, image would be in Connecticut. Or Skype. Yeah. we would be also bilocating visually. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, both phenomena are real, scientifically proven. I mean, we have people riding levitating trains as we're speaking. An aircraft. Um, but let's talk about what is mysticism in the 16th century. And the last few people I've had the pleasure of speaking with about this are more of 20th century mystics. And from what I have uh, learned from, from them um, is that in the 20th century, mysticism is kind of a new way to see and to see the absolute redeeming love of God that transcends all categories. Uh, and some, uh, some of the mystics I've uh, learned about um, you have, are very comfortable using Buddhist language and um, quoting from other faith traditions because God doesn't belong to one cultural practice. Uh, th this is, you know, for, for example, like Thomas Merton or Jim mm -hmm. Finley or people like this. I have the strong feeling that this would not be true in the 16th century, that uh, it would probably be, uh, my guess is that this mysticism is confined to the, the very Catholic Christian language um, that she, you know, I know that Teresa was, uh, condemned uh, Luther. But I'm wondering also if she's informed by, say, the, the Muslim presence in Spain from the 8th century on, or, or the, the Jews in Spain, and that whole uh, convivencia, which is such yeah. a part of the history. And, um, and also, I, I, because of the way she talks to Jesus and sees Jesus, that there's a very strong personality, a very concrete personality to the God she interacts with, unlike some of the mystics in the 20th. Well, her Jesus is very physical. Yeah. Very real, physical, real. Yes, to back up a little bit. Yes, you're right. In the 16th century, there's none of this ecumenical mysticism. Uh, it's very Catholic. And as a matter of fact, Protestants, all of them, the entire spectrum of Protestant belief, they reject Catholic mysticism. They reject the very notion that any living human being can cross the border over to the divine realm, the way that Catholic mystics do claim it. Hmm. So that's a major difference between Catholic and Protestant. And in the past decade and a half or two decades, um, some, some historians and theologians on the Protestant side have tried to reclaim mysticism for early Protestantism. And yes, you can say to some extent, I mean, re religion is a is mysticism. Mysticism is religion. Religion is mysticism because you're, you know, addressing another being in another realm. But crossing over to that other realm is something that only Catholics are doing in the 16th and 17th century. You know, having visions of Christ and so on. That's the pro. No Protestant would dare to, to claim this. If they did, they 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 would be 
booted out. Yeah. So um, Teresa is very Catholic. And uh, may I say, like this, where you you draw the line at Christ, right? Because we know that Luther would have fights with the devil and throw his ego. Oh, yeah, that's a very important distinction. Yes, and I was hoping we could get to that because um, one of the weirdest things about the 16th, 17th century is that while Protestants not only deny the possibility of divine mystical ecstasy, they also deny the possibility of miracles, but they still almost completely take in Catholic demonology. Hmm. So the devil doesn't perform real miracles, but he can fool people into thinking that they're seeing things or that they're getting messages and so on, uh, or levitating, you know, the devil. Yeah. Protestants continue to believe that all of these things are possible to the devil, but not to God. Right. And that's why we have so much uh, witch hunts and so on in Germany. Yes. And Catholics and Protestants are actually, in most cases, using the same books <laughs> ah. <laughs> to, to diagnose, you know, witchcraft. <laughs> the demonology is shared. The theology, the God talk is not. But the demonology is, to a large amount, uh, degree, shared. Got it. And, um, Teresa, you know, your question about uh, Jews and Muslims in Spain, the whole convivencia thing, is highly problematic. And certainly by the time that Teresa is born in 1515, it's very hard to encounter Jews and Muslims in Spain. But Teresa, uh, her paternal grandfather was Jewish. And so on her father's side, the family were conversos. And her paternal grandfather was actually uh, processed by the Inquisition Mm -hmm. and condemned for Judaizing. That's for practicing Mm -hmm. Judaism at home. Whether or not she knew this, it's impossible to tell. Mm-hmm. But I, I think she must have known. And um, it's no accident that all of her male siblings ended up going to the New World, which was a very, very common thing for converso men to do. It was a way yeah. to sort of shed that skin because by, by the time Teresa is an adult, they're passing purity of blood statutes in Spain which means that if you do have any kind of Jewish or Muslim ancestry, you're barred from many professions, including becoming a cleric or, or a nun or monk. So there's that to it. But there's no, I can't find, I and others too, can't find any connection between Teresa's mysticism and what would have been Jewish mysticism in Iberia in the Middle Ages, which is mainly Kabbalistic stuff. The Kabbalah is completely different from from the kind of mysticism of Teresa, which is very, very Catholic. Okay. Okay, thank you. So she uh, is commanded by her confessor to write everything that happens to her. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she writes her, her vida, her life. And she also writes something called the interior castle. Right. Well, actually, her, what are these? her vida is not ordered by her confessor. Oh. It's for the Inquisition. Ah, <laughs> because okay. she's, yeah. she's under the microscope. So the Inquisition did this to everyone hauled before its court. You had to write a life story. Yeah. Of course, hers is much longer <laughs> than the average. Her confessors become involved, of course, in the writing and editing of this life. But it is basically written as a judicial document for the Inquis- Inquisition. 
But of course, you know, it, it gets copied by hand and it gets circulated. The Inquisition actually puts it under lock and key uh, for a long time, even though King Philip II has a copy. Uh, hmm. The Inquisition doesn't even know that Philip II has a copy. <laughs> there are hidden copies, in other words. Hmm. And then once the word gets out that, you know, this this life has been written, the nuns herself, themselves, because, you know, she ends up establishing 17 new convents throughout hmm. Iberia. There's buzz. This book is, is, is the buzz in the monastic community. The, some nuns get to read parts of it. And they say, you know, it would be so great if you went further and explained in more detail what these mystical experiences you, you're you having are, are really all about and how you get there. So she writes this second book, The Interior Castle, which is more focused on the mystical path and mystical experience and is, is more of a, let's call it kind of scientific hmm. uh, treatise on the how and the what of mystical experience. Yes. And um, that book, eventually, her life and her interior castle and other writings of hers are published. But even after her death in 1582, there are still some clerics denouncing her to the Inquisition and pleading with the Inquisition to stop publication of her texts. And not only to stop publication, once it happens, asking yeah. the Inquisition to pull every printed copy of her works off the shelves everywhere, because this is a dangerous woman. And even after she's dead, uh, and even after it's it becomes widely known that her body refuses to decompose, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that miracles, especially healing miracles, are starting to take place, there are still some Dominicans especially denouncing her to the Inquisition. Yeah. And the only reason that the denunciations stop is that she's beatified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think this also goes back to what you were saying about how corporeal uh, Catholicism is in the early modern period, that w we have this tradition of relics right. and how she is divided up and... Um, cut up into pieces, you know, relic of this degree, relic of that degree. Um, then there's some, there's something about, there's something about the, on the one hand, there's body is something to be escaped from. Uh, on the, on the other hand, the body is something, uh, what do you think about the well, body? You know, it's, it's part of the, the larger picture. It took me a long time to realize this, but basically the, the very essence of Catholic orthodoxy is maintaining paradoxes. All the, mm -hmm. all the central beliefs of Catholic Christianity are profound paradoxes, the coincidence of opposites. So nothing is simple. Nothing is simple. You know, your, your body can be uh, like as it was for Francis, um, Francis of Assisi, called his own body brother ass. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and just got, you know, an ass has to be whipped to get them to do whatever they want. And yeah. he treated his body contemptuously and horribly. And yet he was a nature mystic. You know, all yeah. of nature glorifies uh, the presence of God. Uh, and Teresa was pretty much the same way. She was an ascetic who denied herself constantly all the time. But 
her Jesus was very physical. And then after her death, her body it shows very little corruption. And as you said, it's true. It starts getting carved up and, and distributed in a, in a very shameful way, we would think, in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. But at the time, that was actually the highest kind of devotion or honor you could show. Is uh, The French have a beautiful way of expressing it. They call it découpage millimétrique. Wow. <laughs> Millimetric cutting up, yeah. right? The tiniest little sliver of Teresa is as fully powerful as the entire body in the same way that the tiniest little sliver of the consecrated host or the tiniest drop of wine in communion is the body of Christ. There's that parallel. Again, more of this infolding of paradoxical propositions it's bread it's wine but you know it's transformed yeah no and he's uh, he's the creator of the universe but now he's a baby yes and then <laughs> you know he's king of kings but now he's tortured to death as a criminal and then he comes back and uh, she's his mother is a virgin and a mother that's right yes and um, his death puts an end to death yeah um, and he has no sin, but he, like none of this, none of this computes. It's so maybe no. it's supposed to jolt us into a, knock us out of our sense of of normal logic and and yes. open open our eyes a little more. I, what did this is a really great way to put it. I, I I'm I, I love I love the way you you phrase that. It's a the the key of the religion is the paradox. And if you look at Christian history from the earliest centuries on. Those who end up being um, declared unorthodox by the traditions that would end up being the Catholic and Orthodox churches, almost all of them, they're declared unorthodox because they they, they water down the paradox in some way. They try to make it more logical. And that goes across the centuries down to the present. The last Catholic clergyman to be declared a heretic by the Vatican was uh, Father Feeney. I forget his first name. He was in Boston. Mm. And he he declared that there was absolutely no salvation outside the Catholic Church. (laughs) And he was excommunicated. Yeah. And his followers actually formed a schismatic group, the Slaves of Mary. And eventually they were reconciled with the Catholic Church. But they had to give up on this, you know, very blunt, uh, non-paradoxical statement. Yeah. There's no salvation outside the Catholic Church. Yeah. That's the last time I think anybody has been declared yeah. a heretic here in the United States. So, okay. So how does she articulate this theology of the impossible and of the paradox in a way that her sisters, the nuns, could understand the how and the what? Well, uh, you know, it involves asceticism. That's step number one, right? Self-denial. Um, and there's this kind of almost Manichaean dualistic attitude towards the physical world or the world, el mundo. And the asceticism is to be joined with prayer. At first, verbal prayer. This is where everybody begins by reciting prayers. Eventually, you should get to a state where you're not even actually using words. Prayer quiet. It's wordless. At a certain point, God begins praying in you. And that's the higher reaches. 
But all of this is predicated, all of this methodology, right, is predicated on the notion that at your deepest core as a human being, God is actually present. So what you're doing by praying as constantly as possible and denying your body all the gratification it keeps begging you to give it is you're stripping away those layers of yourself that are covering that divine presence and keeping you from it. Now this goes back to, you know, medieval mysticism. And it's actually, you know, sort of reformulated through those devotional texts that she was given to read by her uncle, many of which have their origin in the Rhine River Valley and go back to Meister Eckhart and his disciples. So it's, it's a long and complicated history of how those texts get to be translated into Castilian Spanish and how she gets them. By, night, by 1559, when the Inquisition publishes its index of forbidden books, many of those texts that turned her into the mystic that she is are placed on the index, and she has to get rid of them. Ah. But then she says very boldly in her, her, her Vita, she says, yes, oh, oh, man, it hurt me to turn in these books. These are terrible yeah. times, she says. Tiempos recios. These are terrible times. Yeah. Oh, but I don't need books anymore. I, I have Jesus. <laughs> they, they, they got her to where she needed to be. Right. So she could, so she could take the next step. Yep. And she's yeah. obedient, right? She's obedient. Right. But yes, much in those texts came to be uh, distrusted. Uh, eventually, all those texts work their way off the index, right? Yeah. Um, but it took it took. I don't know. I've never uh, calculated when when any of those texts was taken off the index, but they were eventually. Um, I'm I'm afraid that my students are going to show up in five minutes. I feel I oh. could talk for hours uh, <laughs> about this, especially, you know, the where and the how and the what next. But uh, is there an important thing that we should all know about Teresa of Avila before, before we stop? Well, what she has to say to everyone is the following. Pray. <laughs> Pray. And it's, it's a command. It's advice. Yeah. Not everyone is going to get to the highest levels in this life because she admits, you know, it's rather rare and it's, it's a gift and you never know to whom God is going to give the gift. But, you, you know, prayer is essential to giving your life another dimension. And, and that is uh, her message, right? She's got these instructions in the um, interior castle that the nuns asked her to give them. But basically, it's advice that is intended for very few. But there's a part of that advice that is for everyone, which is you've got to pray. And actually, prayer does connect you to another reality. You're not talking to yourself. And there's something else that she said, um, and I think it's in the interior castle. Uh, I can't remember what text it's in. Uh, this is advice for everyone. Mm. She says, uh, when you're finally judged at the end of life, you're not going to be judged on the size of your accomplishments. You're going to be judged on the love with which you did everything, <laughs> the love you showed, which is uh, kind of a beautiful combination of, you know, pray yeah. and love is yeah. her advice. 
uh, do whatever you're doing with the utmost love for God and for neighbor. And you'll be fine. Yeah. That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful last word. And I know we've only scratched the surface of this very, very big topic. Um, but I want to thank you so much for introducing us to St. Teresa and to 16th century mysticism and for your uh, hour of time this, this beautiful day. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. It's yeah. been a pleasure yeah. talking to you. The pleasure is entirely mine. Would would you uh, give a blessing for our well, I, listeners? Again, I, I feel inadequate giving blessings, but yes, may <laughs> or say a prayer. <laughs> may, may may God help us all and all your listeners, especially, uh, to do what Teresa advised us all to do. Help and help us to pray. Help us to love. Uh, and may that uh, may that love blossom in everyone. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Denitz and Carlos Ayer recorded this conversation on May 16, 2022. That was the feast day of St. Maxima of Fréjoux, a nun and later an abbess at the convent of St. Cassin in Fréjoux in France in the 7th century. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band, and their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a stained glass window at Santo Domingo de Silos, near Burgos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinius. Please email me with questions, comments, ideas for future episodes at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King who Shepherds, God, and angels sing.